Welcome to episode 80 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sycomer trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on your podcast player of choice or by going to psychomer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This show is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Umar Latif a board-certified psychiatrist in general psychiatry, geriatric psychiatry, and addiction medicine. Dr. Latif serves as the National Medical Director of Help for Heroes, a multi-site specialty program he helped design as co-founder to meet the clinical needs of active-duty service members, veterans, and first responders who are dealing with mental health and substance abuse issues. He also works as the Medical Director of Carrollton Springs Hospital and has a private practice at the Noesis Clinic. You can find out more about Dr. Latif by checking out his bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Umar, as a medical professional, you have supported service members and veterans in a number of positions over your career from an early start in the Department of Veterans Affairs. I'm curious to hear how you came to work with the military-affiliated population and what it was like for you in the beginning and where it has gone for you now. No, thank you so much for allowing me to be here and having this important conversation. It's an interesting journey. I had the privilege of being trained with some very good mentors in my fellowship at the Dallas VA Medical Center. So right after my residency training and fellowship training in 2004, I stayed on at the Dallas VA Medical Center as a VA doctor. And during that time, again, it wasn't just direct patient care. It was program development. You know, I was given the opportunity to work with increasing access to care between 2004 and 2007 through telemedicine. In some of the CBOX, when the concepts were really new, we didn't have these nimble video conferencing equipment. So you had those big cathode ray TVs. And how do we help the patients where they're at in an accessible manner? So that was a really good learning experience. And then in 2007, I shifted into private practice and I had colleagues, psychiatrists at Darnell Army Medical Center in Fort Hood, and we were having conversations that they would have a need for their service members to seek treatment, but they had a capacity issue at this point. And so they would, for acute crisis stabilization or specialty care, send the service members to outside entities in the community, and there would be incredible variances in outcomes. Some of those patients were coming back with excellent treatment, excellent outcomes. And some of them were coming back so out of sync with what the mission was, what the original reason for the referral was, that patients were suffering, not only because of that, but command was struggling, that our goal for mission readiness versus now we've gone completely in a different direction. So you know, I was working at a small, busy hospital up in Denton, Texas at that time. 
And in a collaborative fashion with one military base and providers, we said, how do we create something where we can learn from each other? What do we as civilian psychiatrists need to know when we're receiving care for an active duty service member? What do you want to see as a provider when that patient is going back to you? It was from that collaboration, a program called Freedom Care Arose, where we consulted with DOD guidelines, consulted with colleagues programmatically in uh, Walter Reed. We consulted with clinicians who were training cognitive processing therapy, evidence-based treatment. And in a collaborative fashion, we created that program. And from 2007 till I left in 2016, over a period of nine years, a very dedicated team of clinicians. And again, every one or two years, we would evolve the program based on feedback, not only now from service members, but also from veterans coming from local VAs. The program expanded nationally, and almost over that decade, We had the privilege of serving several thousand, not only active duty service members, but veterans also. And then towards the end, we started learning that there's a huge need in first responders too. So that's how the program grew. That's how I grew as a clinician learning. And it was a very professionally rewarding thing for that growth. It's that opportunity to, in a very tangible way, serve those who've served. This was my way of giving back. And this collecting, surrounding yourself with a team of people who are very compassionate in the same place. Because once you earn that trust of your patient, you walk through their journey of healing when they came to you in a state of an absence of imagination. At that point, the patient could not imagine there's going to be help or there's going to be hope. Or their experiences were so disjointed, there wasn't a uniformity of experience that they struggled through that. And that's where we saw bad outcomes. So I think, and one of the things we teach our medical students is that after you finish your degrees and your licensure and stuff, don't stop learning. Your biggest teachers are your patients. And if you approach that from a place of humbleness that I don't know everything, I need to be able to be sensitive to what is this patient's lived experience that is different from what textbooks tell us. And that's then they're allowing you to be in that space, that place of being vulnerable where then together you can help them work towards, for example, in trauma care, we have a concept of recovery from victim to, to striver to thriver. And oftentimes patients are stuck in the first two loops. So that was the journey originally. And then as the program grew, as we brought on some really excellent clinical partners, shifted to Springstone, which is a network of mental health facilities, over 30 locations across the United States, And we found a home for a next version of that original program called Health for Heroes. And the leadership was very passionate. They saw the impact that we had done. They saw the evidence-based curriculum that we had developed with our team. And they saw the outcomes. And Springstone, which is a veteran-led organization, our CEO is a U.S. Army veteran, our chief medical officer is a U.S. Navy veteran, we collaborated with them to stand up then Health for Heroes as a specialized uniform-specific program within Springstone facilities and continuing to evolve the program, learn from where there's room for improvement, and actively report on outcomes. Since 2018, Health for Heroes has served several thousand heroes. And the demographic that we're very specifically engaging is uniform-specific, active-duty military service members, veterans, 
first responders and frontline emergency workers. And so we've been partnering with about 90 plus military installations, both CONUS and OCONUS. And I think one of the things that was very professionally rewarding was during COVID, how we were very intentional and staying ahead of the curve with colleagues who were in military bases, for example, in Italy, at the height of COVID, their providers were struggling, their patients were struggling. What could we do collaboratively to either get them stateside, use precautions for COVID, or use telemedicine for improving access to care? So it's been a very professionally rewarding journey since 2007, continuing to collaborate with both the DOD and the VA, and now in the first responder space. I'm thinking about that journey and some of the clients, even as you said earlier, where you started in 2004, Global War on Terror veterans weren't in the VA at that point, right? You were looking at Gulf War veterans and likely Vietnam veterans at that point, they were in their mid fifties or something like that. And so, while I think some people in the VA may have seen the wave coming at that point, you didn't start seeing Global War on Terror veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan until about 2006, 2007. And that was a seismic shift in the VA. Significant. And there was new learning for us as providers also, because the theater was different. The impact of when we talk about the invisible wounds of war, there was now more learning about how does mild to moderate TBI impact clinical pictures of psychiatric illnesses? How does that change what we know a course of post-traumatic stress is? How does that modify or evolve that? And if you're not trained in that, you'll miss it. And that's where we started learning with this new cohort that dual diagnosis became a very different clinical picture. There was a more brittleness, for example, if you have someone with mild to moderate traumatic brain injury, they've got frontal lobe disinhibition, poor impulse control. Oftentimes those clinical symptoms were misdiagnosed and they were lost down the path of care for too long, and then they would become disheartened that they were not seeing any outcomes and stuff. But there were other things that we learned for this cohort of patients. For example, now the concept of moral injury. And psychiatrically, psychologically, moral injury is not equal to PTSD, is not equal to compassionate fatigue, is definitely not when it's misconceived as moral injury means amoral acts and stuff. No. So We started to see that not everyone who has PTSD and who has attempted or completed suicide, they might have this adjacency, this other process going on that we need to train ourselves as providers on how do we look at what is now being called as the invisible wound of the soul. So there's an evolution in learning as providers also. And that's where cultural competence and clinical competence, I think, is extremely important. One of the things in med school we're taught is that Being a compassionate physician absolutely is beneficial, but being a competent one is not optional. Lack of competence will not save lives. And so one of the things that we're very invested in is that finding a group of passionate providers, passionate clinicians who find this as a clinical calling, but helping them level up with very structured trainings, both on what is the latest science with DOD and National Center for PTSD, telling us what are things that we need to know about new models of understanding suicide, understanding dual diagnosis. How do we cross-train our providers? Because that's one of the things where we've been consulted on a lot from both the VAs and the active duty behavioral health space, and even first responder spaces that someone might be struggling with alcohol and they've gone to some excellent treatments. They've received a medical detox 
They even did a 28-day rehab. That provider, who was an excellent provider in the lane of substance use, was not trained. It wasn't their wheelhouse in seeing in plain sight trauma driving the addiction model. And so we hear the story a lot from patients that a really good chemical dependency counselor would say, we're not going to talk about or touch your trauma processing until you get sober. Or vice versa, a trauma therapist saying, I can't get to the core of the stuff until you're sober. And who's getting lost in that process? The patient is. And so that's one of the things over the course of, you know, almost now going a couple of decades that we learned that evidence-informed care is the paradigm rather than being stuck in these silos of evidence-based care. We don't have the luxury of waiting for a two-year's outcomes study when there's a lot of good scientific literature already available to us as providers. It's the application of that. We don't have the luxury of waiting for a cohort of 12 patients to wait to sign up to start a cognitive processing therapy group when that seven-day delay might create a crisis and a bad outcome. And if you go by the book, you're not supposed to start certain treatments until suicide is off the table. But we also know that during good trauma work, there's an uptick in suicide risk, and you have to be trained in how to walk the patient through that. So clinical competence, cultural competence is something that is not optional when we're helping specialty patient populations. And I think this is one of the things that we've seen in conflicts in the 20th century. Certainly, as each conflict, we have greater medical advances and we learn more. In the 20 years of the global war on terror, the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq are no exception, especially when it comes to what you're talking about, the diagnosis and the treatment of mental health conditions. And as you said, it's been cyclical because then the veterans that, that came to you in 2012 and 13, they've now had three or four deployments, which the ones in 2007 necessarily didn't. So there's this constantly evolving learning as you're talking about. And we know more about the impact of combat and traumatic exposure in service members and veterans now than we have ever before. No, absolutely right. I'm reading right now, Rethinking Suicide by Craig Bryan. And a lot mm -hmm. of these things is these First order thinking that is it repeated deployments that are moving the needle? Is it a certain exposure that is moving the needle for suicide? And in a very elegant fashion, he's trying to inform us that that doesn't quite give us the full picture. For example, Joyner, who has his interpersonal psychological theory of suicidal behavior that he presented quite some time ago, we're starting to see the adjacency for the current combat, the current theater, and the outcome of that, which, which is a whole other topic and how COVID then just became a black swan event for mental health crisis, thwarted belongingness, you know, this sense of social connectedness, and the pandemic then further magnified that, or the sense in the helping professionals of a sense of perceived burdenness, belief that my death is worth more than my life. And this concept that suicide is an acquired ability that then is accelerated with desensitization to death or painful stimuli, so death no longer holds fear for us. But again, what we, what we tell new providers is just being exposed to combat is not synonymous with post-traumatic stress. So you really have to be very precise in your understanding of that particular patient. And this is where then the broader construct comes in. We're having some really new research that's informing us about social determinants of mental health. It's not just what's happening with the patient. It's what is the context of their lived experience 
either helping or hurting their path to recovery. So you're absolutely right. And not just what their current context is, but what their pre-military context is. We've started to see how adverse childhood experiences, the military is as much a running away from something as it was, and it predisposes people. So if you had unhelpful social determinants of health as a child, and then traumatic exposure, and you go back to unhealthy social determinants of health environment post-military, that can almost be a perfect storm. And you bring up such an important point, and further extending that where now we're learning with very good science, what we knew intuitively is trauma has generational impact. The epigenetics of chronic post-traumatic stress or certain psychiatric illnesses with your longevity and then your next generation, the impact of that. So there needs to be as providers an evolution in our understanding as new research informs us, but then also how do we customize that, individualize that treatment to the patient in front of us? You know, I I absolutely agree. I mean, we know what works clinically, perhaps as you're talking about the evidence informed, but then it's the application of that can be very, very important. And you've mentioned the Hope for Heroes program, and that is a non- VA, non-DOD, this is, as you mentioned, Springtone is a, a network of private clinics, but that's a program that can work in cooperation. You've mentioned earlier the collaboration of what you did with, with the Freedom Care program, but that's an important aspect of supporting service members and veterans that's outside both the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense. And it's critical. You know, I mean, one of the things that I share with people about the Help for Heroes, the DNA, what's baked in, if we look at our national leadership team, incredibly talented, incredibly passionate group of people that I've got a privilege to work with every day, and that bring an incredible diversity of background and experience to it. So how do we model what we're trying to do in the Health for Years program is breaking down the barrier, because nationally, we do have both a capacity challenge in mental health care and a capability challenge in mental health care. Rand Corporation did a really excellent study in the word, the verbiage of high quality care. How do we define that? Everyone can have a pretty brochure and say we're providing high quality care. And they looked at certain frameworks. Is the care you're providing military and veteran centered care? For example, the Health for Years program, two decades of combined experience. No one who's providing clinic care is allowed to be in front of that patient in that program until they've received cultural competency training. Collaborative decision-making, we provide a consultation liaison model. So we're not just receiving the patient from a VA medical center or an active duty base and not actively communicating mid-treatment. Every week we have conferences, calls with the providers, accessibility, ease of access barriers of care, making sure that we're in network with VA connected care, and then a continuum of care both inpatient, partial hospital, outpatient, medical assistant treatment. But then when we look at the halo impact, the impact for our first responders in their mental health struggles in recovery is not happening in isolation. It's impacting their families, their children. So being aware of that, providing clinical services outside of Health for Heroes, but within the Springstone model, using the same evidence-based care for child adolescent and family members. And then again, evidence-based care where standing up certain clinical tracks that are specific for trauma or mental health or addiction. But what's really elegant, what's being developed with the team is how do we have a duality of that programming 
so that the patient is accelerating in that care. We're very passionate about our trust and outcome. How quickly can we establish a level of trust based on cultural competency and clinical competency, and then backed by reported outcomes? And that has been what has earned us, like, like I mentioned, 90 plus military installations. And it keeps us going with our vision, which is saving the lives of our heroes and supporting those who serve. So one of the most important things that I'm passionate about is that how can we help break down these barriers, keeping the patient in the center of this? We've talked about the Bush Institute Veteran Leadership Program. And one of the most transformative kind of moments was when our cohort was asked this question, on whose behalf do you occupy this seat? So this program and the impact is bigger than any one of us. And if we lose sight of the patient who we're helping walk across their journey of healing, then there's no differentiator of care here. So how do we break the barrier with the local VA as a partner with them? Just like we've broken down the barrier, we were talking about OEF and theater, I forget if it was 2011 or 13, and we had an active duty service member downrange who had an acute psychiatric crisis. He became suicidal. He was struggling with homicidal thoughts through a command. He was medevac to launch tool. And his base said, don't send them back to us, to our behavioral health. Put him on a flight and get him directly to that program. That was the level of trust. You had to look up our program on a map and where is this place again? But those things only happen if you're sitting at the table right. and you're able to demonstrate that we've got the same mission here. We have to break down these institutional barriers within which the patient is falling, what I call the last mile gap. The V is doing a beautiful, phenomenal job in reducing the stigma, improving access to care. But what happens if your local VA doesn't have bed capacity in a community? And you might have five VIA connected or non-VIA connected hospitals. The local ER has no metric to know, do I send that veteran to a place that just had a bed available and happens to take TRICARE or to a program that has demonstrated high quality care? Because the first 72 hours in that moment of crisis for that patient will make it or break it. If they're in front of a clinical team that is not able to create a space of trust and vulnerability. We all know as clinicians, the completed rate of suicide within 30 days of an inpatient admission are extremely high. So that's a passion that not only helping the patients, but helping collaboratively in a consultation liaison model work together, keeping the patient at the center of all of this. And I think that's the point that I hear that's emerging is the need to establish trust on a couple of different levels. Obviously, us as mental health professionals have a whole way to go to establish trust with our clients, regardless of whether my clients knew that I was a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor. There was still a measure of distrust yes. Yes. from me as a therapist that I had to overcome. But you're talking about establishing organizational trust, yes. being able to make sure that VA provider specifically or that VA VA system generally trusts Hope for Heroes or another community organization to meet the same level of care in the same with the DOD, as you were mentioning. And we do a disservice to our patients, our veterans, our first responders, when that perceived lack of trust becomes a barrier to have conversations. Mm -hmm. How can we collaboratively support each other 
for the common good of the patient. Uh, yeah. I don't know them well enough, so I'm yeah. just going to keep the veteran in this system. I may not have something for a week or two, but it's still better than what I think is out there, and that's simply not true. Or I'll just send a veteran to a local hospital until my bed opens up, and then I'm going to yank them out of that care where they had started opening up. They had started developing a place of trust, and it becomes about the system rather than the patient. So we're having some really good inroads in in continuing these conversations. I'm an optimist, and I think that if we all have value-driven common missions that everyone can speak to and see, we can continue to evolve in the right direction. You know, I absolutely agree. And again, we're as I mentioned earlier, we are farther along now. We've nowhere near arrived, but we're farther right. along now than we were 10 years ago, and we're going to be farther along 10 years yeah. from now. Dr. Latif, it was so great to be able to have you as a guest on the show. If people wanted to hear more about Hope for Heroes, how can they do that? So a couple of different ways. One is I would encourage them to look up our website. And then the other thing is for clinicians who want to refer specific, for example, if active duty members need to refer the clinicians, we've got a dedicated 1-800 line that they can call. Or if there are any questions about first responders or veterans, then they can call the local hospitals in the locations, and they're trained in helping that patient seek the specialty care, either in an inpatient program it's available in that location, or in a specialty PHP IOP program. Because again, that's a whole other conversation. For example, our first responders, some of them have their own barriers where I might have a mental health police officer who does not want to be admitted himself into a hospital. He was just bringing patients a week ago. So that's how we learn. What are yeah. the barriers? What are the internal issues? And how can we collaboratively expand programming to meet you where you're at with the common goal of improved outcomes and saving lives? Absolutely. We'll definitely make sure all of those are in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And I really appreciate what you're doing in continuing to have these conversations that are helping move the needle that ultimately, I do believe strongly, make an impact at the end where the patient sits seeking help and seeking hope. Thank you. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. Psychomer offers an online e-learning laboratory that is free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. Hopefully you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Latif. This is certainly an episode that focuses on supporting those who served and those who care for them with mental health concerns specifically, rather than social support or other unmet needs like other guests have. I really appreciated something that Dr. Latif mentioned early on in the conversation. He said that service members and veterans come to mental health professionals suffering from an absence of imagination. That description is pretty striking. They find themselves in a situation where they can't think of a way out. Whatever they're dealing with, addiction, traumatic stress, emotion dysregulation, moral injury, it's so consuming that they can't imagine that life would be different than the way it is right now. I often describe acute suicidal distress as being stuck in the bottom of a well where you can see nothing but the wall a few feet away from your face. The world shrinks to what's immediately happening, and if what's immediately happening is really, really bad, then life is really, really bad. A lot of the work of mental health and people in the veteran support space in general is helping people develop the perspective that there is a way out. Dr. Latif doesn't suffer from an absence of imagination. 
He doesn't need to imagine a potential solution. He has seen the solutions work. He has seen the veteran in the next well over get out of the hole that they find themselves in, get back to a place where they can see the whole sky, the horizon is miles in front of them, and life is good again. That's the ultimate goal. The second point that I'd like to make is how Umar described the complexity of the psychological conditions that veterans experience. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm a firm believer in the interconnectedness of the mental health concerns that service members and veterans experience. You have those that are common to all, like PTSD, TBI, addiction, and things like depression and anxiety. Those are not uniquely veteran conditions. Sexual assault, vehicle accidents, and natural disasters are well-known causes of PTSD. And what I didn't know when I started this work was that my home state of Colorado has done some of the leading research in the treatment of traumatic brain injuries, not because of our wonderful military population out here, but because of skiing injuries. You don't wear a helmet while sliding down the mountain. So veterans experience these conditions, again, common to all, but Umar also mentioned moral injury, which is a bit more tied specifically to the military experience, or something that many guests have talked about, a lack of purpose and meaning that many veterans feel after leaving the military. As he described, if you have a clinician who is skilled in addiction medicine, but not trauma or addressing existential concerns, then they're only treating part of the condition. Add on top of that homelessness or financial instability or relationship concerns, and you have a veteran who is experiencing a complex set of conditions that require a multi-specialty approach. So it was great to hear Dr. Latif highlight the need for a collaborative approach to support veteran mental health. So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Dr. Latif. If you did, let us know by dropping us a review or shooting us an email at info at We'd appreciate knowing that you're listening, what you think, and what you would like to hear about in future episodes. For this week's Psychomer Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the link to the Psychomer course, Barriers to Treatment. In this course, you'll learn how differences in military culture affect mental health and how to help service members or veterans overcome barriers to seeking treatment. You can find a link to the resource in our show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player of choice, as well as at psychomer.org forward slash podcast. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, We would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.